0: Hey, thanks so much. You guys came back. Sweet. Uh, looking forward to this tonight. Yeah, so I was a global pastor for a while, and when I travel internationally, I love visiting the local marketplaces. And one of the things that you can find in virtually any global international marketplace you go to is the counterfeit knockoff products. So, for example, um, I found your uh, pair of Unki shoes, a Coogee purse or crust toothpaste, you know. Uh, I've also come across things like uh, the Microsoft Bimbo's uh, uh, <laughs> store, Sunbuck's copy, uh, stop by 512 for a Slurpee, right? Or a face food for lunch, right? Or uh, one of my personal favorites, unbelievable, this is not butter, <laughs> <laughs> Now, I, I share these because I think when it comes to sex, like many things, uh, the enemy cannot create. He can only corrupt, right? He can't create good things. can only corrupt the good things that God has made. And so uh, when it comes to sex, I think one of the best ways, you know, when it comes to anything really, when it, if you think through how to spot a fake, like how to know if something's a counterfeit, well, the best way to spot a fake is to get to know the real thing right? Um, when you see these images, the reality is you might never know that this was a, a knockoff product if you'd never seen the real thing, right? Like, I grew up in Beaverton, Oregon, home, or near Beaverton, home of uh, the Nike factory, and grew up with Nike all around, so it was very easy to see when I spot, saw the inky shoes, like, okay, those, those are fake, that's not the real thing, Right? But if you'd never seen a real pair of Nikes, you'd never know you know, that that wasn't exactly the, the magic swoosh, right? Uh, the best way to get to know, uh, to be able to recognize the decoys, is to get to know the real thing. And I say that because often when it comes to conversations around sex, I think sometimes, unfortunately, as followers of Jesus, as the church, uh, we can be no, more known for what we're against than what we're for, right? Uh, and we can be more prone to say, like, hey, uh, just don't do this because God said don't do the bad stuff rather than actually getting to know the good stuff. And so part of the hope last week was to try and spend a little time looking at what's some of the positive vision that God has designed this thing to, to point to. And the idea was that sex can be an icon or an idol, like as an icon, a window window, through which God's designed this to speak to greater things and greater realities. Uh, God has designed designed sexual union and marriage to speak to Christ and the church and the gospel. And it's when we get to know that greater reality that the distortions start to become more clear. Uh, God is faithful, and he's designed it to display his faithfulness. And it's when we get to know that that we can see why adultery is so tragic, because it violates the faithfulness of God that marriage is designed to reflect. We find in the gospel that God is a God who commits to us before he unites with us. And when we see that, we can see why premarital sex or cohabitation are so tragic. Like if adultery violates the covenant, kind of breaks the covenant, um, premarital sex refuses to enter covenant, right? It fails to image Christ, who boldly proclaims to his bride, I am with you, I am for you, I will go all the way to be with you, I'm not going anywhere, I will never leave you or forsake you through thick and thin, publicly, boldly before the world, I unashamedly declare my my even dying and undying love for you as my people. When we dive into the gospel, we see that sex is made for mutual self-giving. Within marriage, And when we see that design for this mutual self-giving, this giving most intimately of ourselves, we can see why something like rape is so tragic, because it takes something that was designed for giving and inverts it, distorts it uh, as a vehicle for taking, like taking from someone. And so I would suggest that uh, what can be most healthy for us is trying and get to know the, the good thing, the real thing, the prototype, if you will, that's in the gospel of Christ and his church. Another theme that we looked at last week was this theme of diversity and union and how uh, one of the things that God has designed sex to speak to, to be an icon of or a window into is God's heartbeat for diversity and union. And we look specifically at how the, the, this shows up in all sorts of ways from the Trinity to who Christ is to the church to uh, a variety of things, but we look particularly at Genesis 1 and 2 and this, this vision where it's um, the structure of creation is diversity and union that God creates man and woman in his own image in a world that's framed by these complementary pairs made with and for one another. Heaven and earth, with one of the most most glorious moments in the mountaintop where those two become one. Land and sea, with one of the most beautiful places being the coast where those two come together. Night and day, with sunrise and sunset, is that most majestic time of day where the two become one. And at... uh, at the pinnacle of creation, God creates man and woman in his own image, both to image and reflect God and also that they image and reflect together something about the structure of the world that he's made. They are a window into God's heartbeat for diversity and union. They are also a pair made with and for one another. And I think it's when we have that positive vision in place from last week that uh, it's now we can look this week at, uh, I think it can help shed light on some of the tough topics that we're facing today. Uh, Two topics I want to look at in particular today are divorce and then the LGBT conversation, right? Um, Where uh, what we're going to look at and see is how Jesus goes back to Genesis when he's talking about divorce and says, in essence, the problem is that it violates the union side of the equation. And Paul in Romans 1, we're going to look at how he goes back to Genesis and says, in essence, the problem with same-sex sexual activity is that it violates the diversity side of the equation. But both for Jesus, for Paul, for the gospel, the the bigger picture, the prototype, the positive vision, if you will, is this vision of God's heartbeat for his world of diversity and union together. All right, so let's jump in. Um, So we start with divorce. So we start with divorce. Uh, Why is divorce so painful? Uh, the holmes Raw stress scale, it's used by the medical community to kind of measure, uh, rank, like stressful events in one's life. And divorce is right up next to the top of the list, like number two, right? I found that divorce is more stressful than going to prison, more stressful than battling cancer, more stressful even than the death of a close family member. In fact, the only thing that ranks higher on the list is the death of one's own spouse. Which, think about it for a minute, the, the only thing more painful than the metaphorical death of the marriage is the actual death of one's spouse. So divorce is extremely painful, and I'd suggest the pain is rooted in something deeper than not just what it does to each other, to the spouses, though that is significant, but that at its root, divorce implicitly speaks a lie about the heart of God, that it preaches a false gospel. When we look at what marriage is designed to convey, uh, it's interesting to look at how divorce violates that image. Jesus Uh, Talking about divorce, he affirms diversity in union and says that the problem with divorce is that it violates the union side of the equation. So let's look at Matthew 19. This is where Jesus is responding. He gets asked by the Pharisees, the religious leaders. um, uh, They're trying to trap him, and they ask him about divorce, whether he thinks it's okay. And he responds. Haven't you read that at the beginning the creator made the male and female and said for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh so they are no longer two but one flesh therefore what God has joined together let no one separate All right a couple observations first notice how Jesus goes back to creation When he gets asked, he doesn't necessarily just go to the law and go like, well, no, it's not okay because God said it's not. Like, well, that's true. uh, He actually goes even deeper and goes, it's not just in the law. It's actually rooted in the design and structure of creation. He refers to God as the creator. He points them back to at the beginning in creation. And then notice he quotes Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. That first quote where he says, "Made, made them male and female. He's quoting Genesis 1 there. Not just any part, but the climax of Genesis 1, the epic poem that comes at the climax of Genesis 1, where God created the male and female in his own image, at the pinnacle of creation. And the next, he also quotes Genesis 2 and says, For this reason, man will leave his father and mother, be united as his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is uh, the climax of Genesis 2 passage, where it comes at the end of going, this is the logic for marriage and family and how, how all this works. So it's interesting, Jesus roots his response in the structure and design of creation. It's also interesting, he really only needs Genesis 2 to make his point, right? Like if he wants to say divorce violates union, he really needs the part about the two becoming one flesh. But he also affirms, he intentionally seems to go out of his way to also affirm the diversity in marriage in Genesis 1. This is male and female. Some would say today, like, Jesus never uh, speaks to gay marriage or things of that nature. And um, while there's some truth to that, there is a reality that it wasn't a live issue back in his day, right? Like, you don't tend to respond to things that aren't pressing topics or live issue that everyone takes for granted. 500 years before Jesus, 500 years after Jesus, in Jewish culture, everybody... Um, just knew it was wrong within the Hebrew worldview. But it is interesting that Jesus does proactively affirm the diversity of male and female as a part of the design within creation and the structure of creation that goes into sexual union. All right, so Jesus goes back to creation. Notice also how Jesus says that God is the one who actually unites the two and makes them one flesh. He says, therefore, what God has joined together, and that challenges the way I think we often think about marriage. Like, I've officiated a lot of weddings, and usually, I mean, don't we get married, right? Like, we order the flowers and the caterer and get reserved in the ballroom and, and all that. But, and all that's true, and yet there's this reality that Jesus sees his God, and, God, his Father, at work in marriage as actually uniting the two and creating a true union. He says they're no longer two. They're actually one flesh. There's a true union that God affects here. I often like to tell couples when I'm officiating a wedding, like, I'm just a stand-in, like a representative here, that ultimately it is God officiating the wedding, of bringing you to you in your covenant, and that you're going to consummate in union together. He's bringing you together to make you one. Uh, that the uniting of bodies is intended to be embedded within the uniting of lives, as one. So God is the one who unites, and that means that this is a true union. This isn't um, just something you can easily pull apart, uh, like, Two post-it notes or something, right? Easily removed. I like to think of it more as like welding, like a wedding is a welding, like the actual taking two uh, different rods, if you will, of steel or something, and in the furnace of God's love, God is making them into one new thing together. Or we can also think of the foundation of a home, where maybe the cement and the rebar and the different things, the materials, they arrive separately, but then when the foundation is poured, they become one. And you can't just remove the pieces of something that's truly become one without fragmenting or fracturing the pieces, right? Uh, The legendary actress Gwyneth Paltrow, uh, when she was getting divorced from uh, Chris Martin, the lead singer of Coldplay, she famously described the divorce as a a conscious uncoupling. Um, She's like, we're not getting a divorce, we're getting a conscious uncoupling. And one can empathize with what she was trying to get at. She's like, dude, we don't want to treat each other with venom and vitriol and cruelty the way it often happens in divorces. We want to lift each other up and care for our kids and all. And we, she said, you know, we believe this can essentially be a good thing if we just treat each other well in the process. Uh, but the reality is it doesn't work that way. Like marriage, union, sex, all were we're not like IKEA furniture where we can just kind of unscrew the pieces carefully and everything will be okay if we do it carefully, right? When I've walked with couples who've gone through divorce over the years, I suggest the image that comes to my mind more is if you've seen the cl- classic movie Office Space and the scene where the guys are all taking a sledgehammer to the office printer or whatever, you know. But that's the way most couples are to describe. It's just this agonizing process that feels like destruction. And indeed, Gwyneth Paltrow, years later in an interview, she said, you know, actually, years later, that was the most traumatic, that was the most painful experience I'd ever, I'd ever been through. So there's something painful when that union gets violated, gets broken. And, uh, and Jesus says here that in essence, divorce shatters the icon, that it takes this thing that God has created, this union, and it renders it asunder. And I think part of the reason it's so painful is, again, yes, what it does to each other's spouses, um, an impact it can have on kids, but even more so that the window, it speaks a message like a false message about the gospel and the world that God has made, the structure of creation that God has made. I think kids often get this better than their parents. Now, let me read. This is uh, from something I'm writing right now, working on. Uh, I think kids often get this better than their parents. When mom and dad talk about divorce, they tend to focus on the logistics, who gets weekends and holidays, how to cover childcare and coordinate school drop-offs, finding the best counselor and constructive activities to rebuild normalcy but children are more perceptive. They often reach for words to describe something deeper, something tumbling beneath the surface like Leviathan. The union that brought them into existence is unstable, precarious, dissolving. Something more foundational is crumbling in the ground beneath their feet, a rupture rippling through the rafters of the ceiling overhead, a crack fissuring through the heavenly skies as the universe unravels around them. And they're right. If marriage is an icon of creation, a stained glass window into the cathedral of the world. Then divorce displays an architecture built for collapse, a universe where detachment, dissolution, and disintegration have the last word. A house divided against itself cannot stand, and a crumbling couple images the collapse of our cosmic home. It is a blueprint for a world where division has the final say, where togetherness yields to separation, communion gives away to isolation, and we wind up alone at the end. Divorce is an icon of hell. So I think once more, when we see the beauty that God has designed sex to speak to in marriage, we can see why it's so painful when that gets rendered asunder. And yet there are circumstances where divorce is permissible. Jesus goes on to talk about um, uh, adultery, cases of adultery, and uh, Churches, many churches would often point to, you know, what's often called the three A's. So uh, adultery, abandonment, and abuse as circumstances in which divorce may be permissible. Uh, we could have a much longer conversation about that, even next week in the questions if you guys want to. Uh, and the reality, though, is um, I think we see in this that God hates divorce because God loves people, right? And even when it's permissible, it's always tragic because the icon, again, is being shattered. The window and what it was, the glory it was designed to display is being broken. But the beauty, I know many good friends and have walked with many who have been through divorce, uh, sometimes from their own sin in their past, sometimes from the sin of their spouse through no fault of their own. And the beauty of the gospel is that either way, there is hope for those who've experienced the trauma of divorce because Jesus himself is the shattered one. Like at the cross, Jesus bore the brunt of our great divorce, where we have all cheated on the faithful God that we were made for. We have run after other loves. We have broken this marriage of heaven and earth and life with the God that we were made for. And yet God has come to pursue us in Christ. And on the cross, Jesus bore our adultery, our abuse, our abandonment. He took it all upon himself as the icon, the image of God. He allowed himself to be shattered. In order to be united with all of our fragmented broken pieces and to gather them through the power of his resurrection back in union with him, restored and made whole. So, divorce, uh, as brutal as it is, in Christ, it's not a dictator that can define your identity when Jesus is your deliverer who emancipates your destiny, right? So, there's hope in the gospel. Part of the hope, though, tonight is to just say when we see this diversity in union, this image of what, what, how God has designed this and what he's designed it for, uh, we see part of the reason that something like divorce can be so painful. All right, well, let's move now uh, to our next topic. There? All right, so it's time for everybody's favorite dinner table conversation, gay sex, right? Uh, now, the LGBT conversation is loaded today. you know uh, It's controversial, probably one of the most controversial conversations in the church, and many of the voices out there are holding megaphones. So I think before we jump in, there's a few words that are in order. Uh, first, especially is to say that if you're gay, you're loved. right? So if you're here tonight and you uh, find yourself attracted to the same sex, the most important thing, First and foremost that you need to hear is that Jesus loves you, is for you. Uh, His posture towards you is one of radical embrace. Like The cross shows how far he's willing to go to be with you, like all the way. And uh, you are created in the image of God with dignity and value and worth and there is nothing that can take that away. Uh, You have tremendous gifts and talents to contribute to the life of God's kingdom and his people. Uh, And so that's the first thing that definitely needs to be said, and so second, if you're straight, don't hate, right? Like, there is no venom in the Savior's veins. Like, Jesus calls us to lay down our lives for his world and a world that he loves, um, and it's been tragic and heartbreaking for me to know family and friends who have experienced um, extreme uh, poor treatment, you know, really, really just vicious treatment, and sometimes from the hands of Christians, uh, being called dehumanizing names, being spat upon, being kicked out of their homes, even just for trying to wrestle with other attractions and what that means for them. So if you're gay, you're loved. If you're straight, don't hate. And third, I think it's helpful for us to just kind of clarify language, right? So what do we mean when we're talking about homosexuality? Uh, One of the reasons I don't like using the term a ton is that it can be really ambiguous, right? Um, Are we talking about desire, that someone finds themselves attracted to the same sex? Or are we talking about identity, that someone identifies uh, as gay or lesbian and makes that a part of their identity, who they are? Or are we talking about action? same-sex sexual activity, men having sex with men or women having sex with women, right? Um, People use the word homosexuality and there's often a lot of different associations in areas like that that they have. Uh, The first two areas are really important, desire or identity, like attraction, desire, or identity. Uh, And we can talk about that more next week in the Q&R if you guys want to. But for tonight, what I want to focus on is the third realm of just action. Trying to go, many people struggle to know, okay, I kind of know that the Bible teaches or Christianity says, like, you're not supposed to have sex with someone of the same sex or gender, right? Um, but I don't know that I know why. Like, that just seems kind of cruel or oppressive. And and I want to try and look tonight at, I think, how our discussion from last week can shed a little bit of light on some of the logic, at one angle on why. There are some other ones, but I want to look tonight at one angle on why. And I want to do so by looking at Romans 1. So we're talking about action, men having sex with men, women having sex with women, and why I think the Bible says it's off limits, right? Uh, Romans 1 is the most famous passage in the Bible on this topic. It's uh, Even though it's only a few verses long, it's the longest with the most graphic kind of detail and all. And so what I want to do is start by just kind of looking at these verses in question and then zoom out to see how they fit within the broader structure of Paul's argument in Romans and what he's talking about. All right, so chapter 1, verse 26 to 27. Paul says, because of this, God gave them, or humanity. He's talking about the nations, the Gentiles, humanity. It's because of this, God gave humanity over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. All right, so pretty straightforward and graphic, right? Men are hopping in the back seat with other men. Women are rolling in the hay with women. It's explicit, graphic, right? Uh, But notice at the beginning, Paul says, because of this, because of what? Like, what has just happened in Romans 1 that helps lead into this? What's the bigger structure of the passage here? I think it's crucial that we zoom out and see this. Um, Well, a couple observations. First off, when we zoom out, Romans 1 is saturated in creation, like creation language, creation imagery. It's, uh, creation is clearly the context for this passage. So for example, Paul, just earlier, a few verses before, he refers to God as the creator who's been revealing himself since the creation of the world. And yet our problem is that we have worshipped and served created things, he says, rather than the creator. So creation is clearly kind of the canvas that Paul is painting this Romans 1 picture upon. He also uses seven key words in this passage that are drawn directly from Genesis 1. So uh, notice the parallels here. So Romans 1, they exchange the glory of the immortal God for images, or iconos, in the likeness of homoamari, like mortal mankind, birds, animals, reptiles. And if you look over the Genesis 1 passage, um, these, are, uh, these are like echoing uh, five words here and then two more that come right after this, the words for male and female, thelu and Arson that he's just for man and woman. Like, Paul's going bam, 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 these seven words right in a row uh, that he's echoing immediately from Genesis 1. Now, in Jewish literature, and the Bible, you find this a lot. This was a Jewish way of almost like quoting. It would be like a politician today saying, I have a dream, right? And immediately, everyone's mind goes to Martin Luther King in his famous speech. Everybody knows what he's talking about, whether or not he explicitly says, in the words of Martin Luther King, Right? Similarly here, uh, this was a way of echoing and and, ha- and drawing allusions to the Old Testament here. Okay, so uh, another way that Romans 1 is saturating creation, uh, creation is the context here, is in Paul's use of the language of natural and unnatural. So when he says uh, women exchange natural relations for unnatural ones, uh, what does that word unnatural mean? Well, the term is paraficin. It literally means against nature. And in the Greco-Roman world, um, this was used for one thing and one thing alone, same-sex sexual activity. So there were other terms uh, used for other behaviors. So piderastus was a term for uh, men having sex with boys, for example, for an age discrepancy. Um, Pornea was a term for all sorts of um, anything outside of the bounds of appropriate sexual behavior. And yet, in the broader Greco-Roman world, uh, this term, again, was used for one thing alone. Uh, well, why was gay sex considered being against nature? Well, uh, different philosophers, theologians, different people disagreed. Some thought it was, well, some emphasized because of the inability of the two to become one, that the of union element was not possible. Uh, others pointed to kind of the lack of, uh, uh, unlike a couple that struggles with infertility, Uh, the inability and the very structure of the relationship to be oriented towards the potential of giving life or procreation. Um, Others pointed to not union or procreation, but problems with gender dynamics. That It turned the man, for example, into uh, being penetrated like the female side usually of the encounter. Now we don't know if Paul had some or all those which associations in mind, but the big picture here is that it clearly shows Paul uh, is seeing this as grounded in the structure of creation, something in the natural order which confronts a common myth that you hear today. I think you'll often hear some that Paul only had uh, exploitative relationships in mind because they weren't aware back then of consensual same-sex relationships. And the reality is it's just not true. There's loads of examples of same-sex consensual relationships in the ancient world, even amongst emperors and amongst uh, women with women, men with men. Um, and so not only that, like Paul's language here, looting back in Genesis, the natural and natural, It's clear that he's not pointing to power dynamics and culture, but design dynamics and creation that are the issue. Okay, so that's sort of the backdrop for Romans 1, Uh, but there's also a structure to the passage. Romans 1 is structured by three exchanges. You notice that phrase we saw, uh, women exchange natural relations for unnatural ones. That's the third exchange in the passage. And the first two are actually more significant. The first two are exchanges that we made on God. So in verse 23, the first one is we exchanged the glory of God for idols. The second one is we exchanged the truth of God for a lie. The third one is uh, women exchanged men for women as sexual partners. And I think the picture that we're supposed to see here is that this third exchange, it's a horizontal exchange on the level of humanity that mirrors the greater vertical exchange we've made on God. Like there is the great exchange, if you will, in Romans 1, is that we have traded creator for creation, God for things of this world. We've traded the giver for the gifts. And when we look here, we also see, again, creation in the backdrop. So verse 23 says, They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images and likeness of mortal mankind and birds and animals and reptiles. Now, uh, I think this is clear echo allusion again to Genesis 1, because if you think back to what were, we were created in the image of God, basically to image his glory into the world, one of the root problems is we exchanged, we, the image bearers became idol makers, right? We exchanged that glory by actually, instead of being the image, we actually began to make images and bow down and worship idols, right? Uh, the, the things we were created to rule over, we actually placed ourselves under and worship, so there's a clear Genesis 1 echo there. Um, and then when he says the truth of God for a lie that we exchanged, it feels like a clear reference as well to the serpent in the garden in Genesis 3 and the deception. Uh, so Paul seems to very clearly be riffing off the creation account here. Uh, well, when we get to the third, why is this when we get to the third exchange here, uh, same-sex sexual activity, men and women trading each, you know, one another uh, for, right, as sexual partners, it's interesting, why does Paul use this here? Why does Paul use gay sex here? Like, why not murder or rape or greed? Those things seem like way clearer violations. If you wanted to pick, man, humanity's gone amok. Those seem like way clearer um, things, right? Well, I think the reason when we see the structure becomes clear, that the problem is not necessarily that gay sex is more serious than other sins, but that it's symbolic of something deeper. He's pointing to an unraveling in the structure or order of creation of God's design for the good world that he's made. Uh, The image of God is the climax of Genesis 1. And when Paul, those seven key words that we saw that he quotes, are all from that image of God poem section. So Paul's not just drawing heavily off page one of the Bible. He's drawing specifically off the image of God section. And what appears to be happening in these three exchanges is that the image of God, the kind of corporate, collective, social body of humanity... It's like we're unraveling on both our vertical and horizontal dimensions. In both our God relation, the one we're created to image, and man and woman created together in his image. There's an unraveling that's taking place in the structure of creation at the level of humanity, the human social body. Uh, Paul is clearly... um, Well, time. I don't want to go down that road. (laughs) Uh, Okay. Big picture, I think when Paul does this, he's setting up the bigger theme of Romans 1 because this isn't where he stops. Like he goes on from here and he launches into this laundry list of 21 sins that cover pretty much everyone. That's where he gets into rape and greed and murder and, and even talking smack about your parents, right? Uh, this laundry list of 21 sins that characterize humanity and number 21 is probably symbolic, right? It's a picture of seven times three, just the total chaos that sin has unleashed in the world. So Romans 1, 2, and 3, Paul seems to be presenting this unraveling in the structure of creation that sin has unleashed, and how it unravels our humanity. And this impacts all of us. And the climax of Paul's argument is, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. His big emphasis, the end game he's aiming at, it's not homosexuality, but humanity. Right? It's not some of us, but all of us. But he is uh, showing here something about how um, same-sex sexual activity represents or speaks to this breakdown in God's design and order for the structure of creation. Well, two things that I'd suggest this can speak to or teach us today, and then we'll land the plane here. Uh, The first is that God is pro-diversity. right? If we think about what the issue is here, uh, the root issue, and the same way God is pro-union, God is also pro-diversity. The issue with same-sex sexual activity is that it trades diversity for uniformity, exchanges complementarity for similarity, exchanges a window into our biological counterpart with a reflection of our mirrored self. It becomes an icon into a world of same with same rather than difference and harmony. It actually speaks to uh, the otherness of creator that's been traded for the sameness of creation. Gay sex is an icon of anti-diversity. And this can sound ironic today because when we think of diversity today when it comes to sex, we tend to think of diversity of desire, like the various different desires that we might have for the number of partners, the type of partners, or those kind of things. But I'd suggest here that the vision is actually a diversity that runs deeper than merely our desires, a bodily diversity what the philosophers might call an ontological diversity, a diversity of our being as male and female that God has designed as a window into his heartbeat for the world. When Paul and Jesus, you know, well, there's all sorts of ways that we're diverse. Some of us like spicy food, others like mild. Some like rap, some like country. Some are introverts, some are extroverts. Uh, But when Jesus and Paul want to talk about sex, they go back to the most deeply embedded diversity intertwined in the fabric of the human social body male and female, through which we've come to exist. And the other observation here is that true union can't happen in this, that it's not only diversity that suffers here, but also union. The two are unable to become one flesh. Uh, Is this just saying, let's say, is this just saying like the parts don't fit? No. It's saying that they're not just parts. Like Our bodies are sacred. We don't just have bodies, we are bodies. And God has designed... Us body and soul as windows into his heartbeat of the world for the world, the heartbeat of diversity and union. So if divorce preaches a world destined to fall apart, gay sex preaches one that cannot come together. But let's land the plane with something that I think speaks to all of us. That's the reality that we are all in the same boat together. That's really Paul's driving emphasis in Romans 1. Uh, Sometimes when I'm asked, uh, do you think homosexuality is sin, my first response is usually, I think American sexuality is sin, right? Like when you look at the prevalence of divorce, adultery, pornography, premarital sex, cohabitation, uh, rape, like sexual violence, uh, abortion, the amount of fractured families, kids in foster care, when you just look at the reality of our sexual culture, and if you were to peel back the surface into our own hearts, like there's a brokenness that needs the healing power of Christ and the gospel fix. I like to think of it as almost like um, becoming too myopically focused on the LGBT conversation. It's an important conversation, you know, but becoming too myopically focused on it, I think, can be like focusing on a leaky faucet on the Titanic, right? Like, yes, there's water getting to the ship, but we've got way bigger issues at hand, right? And American sexuality is the Titanic, Um, I remember going out with some friends from church years ago, and uh, it's guys I'd known for years, about seven of us, around the table. And one opened up just kind of acknowledging that um, he had kissed a woman who was not his wife. So we began to press into that, and quickly, like dominoes, other confessions began coming around the table. Someone else uh, was um, becoming romantically... uh, Involved with someone who was not his spouse and uh, was afraid it was right on the verge of a full blown affair. Uh, someone else had racked up $10,000 in credit card debt and online porn and had yet to tell his fiance. Uh, someone else was unable to stop compulsively masturbating multiple times a day. Like, there was loads of sexual dysfunction all around the table, and none of it was same sex related in nature, right? And I think this speaks to the reality of. Um we could all, when we get to the 21 things that Paul describes later and the bigger stuff he gets into in Romans 1 and beyond, we could all find ourselves somewhere on that list. And the beauty of the gospel is that even in spite of the great exchange that we've made, the bigger picture, the, the root bigger piece here is that we've exchanged God for creation. We've exchanged creator for creation, God for the things of his world, the giver for the gifts. The beauty of the gospel is that in Christ, God has accomplished an even greater exchange. That Jesus has exchanged our sin for his righteousness, his obedience for our rebellion, his perfection for our rejection. He has taken on our poverty that in him we might become rich. He has borne the weight of our evil that we might receive his holiness. He has taken on the curse, the blessing of God's redemptive kingdom to come through him into the world. The reality is we all need the healing power that Christ brings in the gospel. And we all find ourselves broken at the foot of the cross. And I think what this means is that we can, on the one hand, that we can pursue, for those of us who love and follow Jesus, we can pursue a life of holiness, whether in our singleness or in our marriage, that we can devote our sexuality to Jesus and seeking to live faithfully to him as our ultimate king and lord. And likewise, we can pursue not only a radical holiness, but also a radical love for any and all in in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our community, in our world. Uh, Whether we're talking about the LGBT community, whether we're talking about the divorce, whether we're talking about the variety, children in foster care, whatever arena we're talking about, that Jesus calls us to both a radical obedience to him and a radical love of laying down our lives for his world. God, I thank you that you are pro-diversity, God, and that you are pro-union as well, Lord, that you have created our world for diversity and union, for difference and harmony, God. I thank you that you have created sex as just a beautiful and brilliant icon, our window, into the glory and goodness of creation that you've designed us for. Lord, I pray that as the church, as the body of Christ, as your people, as those who follow you, that we would pursue a radical obedience to you, God, putting you first and foremost in our lives in every area, but particularly tonight, God, as we talk about in the area of sexuality and knowing that that is one that can be increasingly uh, filled with temptation and difficulty and even controversy and seeking to follow you faithfully in the arena. And so, Jesus, we devote our lives to you. God, I pray that it would not be out of a legalistic, moralistic whatever, God, but it would be captivated, by God, the beauty of who you are and the glory of what you've made us for, God, Father, I also pray that you would mark us as your people with radical love, Lord, that we would be willing to sacrificially lay down our lives for anyone and everyone wherever they may be coming from, Lord. so that's what you have done for us, and so Jesus, thank you at the end of the day that you have uh, you became the shattered one to pull our broken pieces back together at the cross. That you accomplished an even greater exchange than our exchange of creator for creation that you exchange yourself for us and we might be brought back into union with you forever. And God, thank you for the beauty of marriage is designed to point ultimately to that reality of our union with you as your people forever. Lord, Jesus, it's in your name and it's for your glory. A faithful one, we pray, amen.